When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. What an opening line. You know, my beloved son has COVID. Good. So do all of his mates. Good. Four. You cannot say that the worst case scenario is the truth. When he did his announcement to the nation, I thought, I can hardly bring myself to look at you. It's really not up there with the great pandemics in history. One. We have liftoff. Another blast off, another trip to Planet Normal. The Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. And do we ever need a break from planet Earth? Peering from the windows of our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense, looking down on recent events, it's enough to make you stockpile sacks of flour, to fight in the supermarket aisles for that all-important loo roll, for the government's announced new lockdown measures, not as draconian as back in March, but a definite tightening of the rules, for the next six months, we're told, unless we see what the government calls palpable progress. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has told the country we've reached a perilous turning point in the fight against coronavirus. But Alison, you're not buying it. Oh, Liam. Uh, Wake me up when it's all over, will you? I mean, (laughs) I was actually trying to start Planet Normal with something positive. And I thought the one positive thing I could think of is we've got plenty of time to save up the 200 quid for the fine. We're all going to have to pay over Christmas for having more than six people around for Christmas dinner, aren't we? Well, we are now because even grouse shooting is going to be limited, so we can't have our indoor shooting range, can we? <laughs> indoor turkey fest. No. Well, I've been trying to keep faith with Boris. As you know, I was a huge fan. And when he did his announcement to the nation, I thought, I can hardly bring myself to look at you. That's how bad it's got. And I do think that that's a growing feeling in the country. Here is this you know, amazing libertarian saying, you know, that spiritually it pains him to sort of lock us down and threaten the army to go in and drag people out of the boozer at 10pm. Can you imagine any British Prime Minister coming up with these sort of draconian measures? And I suppose the thing that, that really upsets me, Liam, is you think, what's it for? Is there any proof that these new restrictions are going to halt the progress of the virus? Of course they're not. They might do it for two weeks. They're even talking about six months of this stuff. But the minute minute they relax the measures, the virus will bounce back because it's a virus. And where is the balance? What I felt very upset about was Boris said, oh, you know, there are these dreadful people who say, just let the virus rip. You thought, no, we're just arguing that the healthy section of the population could get the virus. That would be good. And there would be some balance with our economy, which is in increasingly dire straits. We saw, didn't we, on Monday, Sir Patrick Valance and Professor Chris Whitty with their press conference of doom saying, you know, here's a really scary graph which bears no resemblance to any scientific truths showing that the rate of infections is going to double every seven days and that will get us to 50,000 cases a day by mid-October. They also said we were following France and Spain and I've been looking at what's going on in France and Spain and trust me, they're not at 50,000 cases a day. And Liam, you, you may have noticed that 
Boris, in his broadcast, actually subtly amended the doubling every seven days to doubling every 20 days, which means that we'd lose 41,600 people off that infected figure of 50,000 and far, far fewer deaths. So we have high, relatively high infection rates at the moment, blessedly low deaths and relatively low hospitalizations, which, are, which are, we've talked about this before. Those are the figures we should be looking at. And yet we now, all those pubs and cafes that were starting to get going, kicked in the teeth. Remember the Iraq war when we were jobbing hacks and we've often compared COVID to the Iraq war. We've called it Boris's Iraq war, haven't we? Mm. Uh, just as Tony Blair's legacy will always be uh, dominated by Iraq. Even earlier in his premiership, Boris's legacy, it seems, will always be dominated by COVID, whatever now happens. And remember, during the run-up to the Iraq war, spinmeister-in-chief Alistair Campbell came out with 45 minutes from destruction, tanks at Heathrow, to put the willies, if you like, up the population. We have to go and bomb Iraq, otherwise uh, London's going to be destroyed. I think that 45 minutes phrase became notorious, and I think this 50,000 a day by mid-October will become yeah, notorious. absolutely. Because there's been a real sea change now, I think. There's a number of scientists coming out saying to Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance, this is just wrong. This is an abrogation of science. You've turned science into spin, and we're going to an almost sort of pre-enlightenment view mm. of what science mm. is when it should be evidence-based. To put that graph up there... At a time like this, I thought was very, very callous. And we'll come back to bite not just those individual scientists, but we'll come back to bite the government. It was astonishing, wasn't it? I mean, I, I, I just was reeling. It was totally disingenuous of the chief scientific advisor to say, he said twice, this is not a prediction. So why show the graph? And I'm sitting there thinking, where is the scary graph prediction for unemployment, Liam? The government is relying on the fact that, that the polls are showing them that the public backs these you know, tough measures. Well, let's wait till October when the, the furlough's over. This, by the way, this is the week when the pause on evictions ends okay so from this week on people will be able to be evicted and that's going to start making the news from october when the furlough ends lots and lots of people that everybody knows are suddenly going to lose their jobs and let's just see how long the enthusiasm for measures which blight the economy continues and I know I, I sent you earlier today, there's an absolutely brilliant Daily Star front page this morning with Boris in a clown mask and it says, that master plan in full. Bozo Boris. <laughs> well, normally, as you know, I'm just plain telegraph reader like a stick of rock through me. But this, the star goes on to have confidential government master plan for COVID and it says, blah, 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 nonsense, blah, blah, U-turns, blah, blah, bluster, blah, blah, blame others, blame Hancock, that's it. So, so we're actually seeing the popular press starting to take the mick, aren't we? And I think that that just is now, of course, it's been a very serious time. But I think the fact that the government is inciting both ridicule from the popular end of things and serious criticism from not just heavyweight scientists, but when we, we've noticed the Tory backbenchers who are obviously getting messages from constituents like me. Sir Graham Brady, chairman of the influential 1922 committee, he's talking about we, we've got to have parliament being given a role. You can't just railroad these things through. I, I was thinking, Liam, do you remember back at the start, the government promised us that every three weeks, parliament would ratify the, the ongoing measures. What happened to that? Indeed. I mean, when the lockdown came in, it was just before the Easter recess. No one knew what was going to happen. Parliament thought it reasonable to give the government the power to do this, to use the vernacular, on the nod. But an awful lot of things has happened since then. And the political dynamic has now changed. The government is using powers to justify what it's doing that don't allow parliamentary scrutiny, but those powers do need to be renewed at the end of the month. And mm. horrendous as it may sound, Alison, there is a view in Westminster that had it not been for Tory backbenchers and some Labour backbenchers calling the government out and saying, look, there's massive economic damage here. There's massive damage 
to health outcomes because people aren't presenting at hospital. What we've been saying on Planet Normal for months and months and months, had there not been that representation by parliamentarians from across the House, then these new lockdown measures could have been even more draconian than they currently are because they are different from the March ones in that non-essential shops won't close, but shopkeepers, retailers will have to wear masks at all times. We are going to have, we hope, schools and universities staying open, albeit with a lot of restrictions. So the economic fallout won't be as bad as it was in March, but it's still really, really bad given that we were trying to get the economy back up and running again. Eat Out to Help Out was an astonishing success, much to Chancellor Rishi Sunak's credit. He only got it through. He had to sign a letter saying he was going against the advice of his civil servants to, to do this policy. Do you remember that? Yes. And, you know, I know from pubs and restaurants in my own hometown and on trips to London, it has made all the difference. It saved their businesses. And I don't mind U-turns when the evidence changes. And again, that's something we've argued for on Planet Normal, so-called iterative decision-making. But I don't really think the evidence has changed very much. Of course, when you test more, there are going to be more cases. But we need to delineate all the time, as reputable scientists are now stressing, uh, and common sense newspaper columnists like us have been stressing, that when you test more, you have more cases. But there has not been a really significant increase in deaths, more than you wouldn't see because the weather's getting colder and we're moving out of summer. It does seem really strange for the government not to be constantly stressing the difference between more cases, which may in itself be a good thing, and we'll come to that, more cases and more deaths. And I was really taken by your, your column in today's paper, Alison. That's Wednesday, the 23rd of September. Because are you, you said, are, you re- are you reading it, Liam? I do. I do I, some, <laughs> when there's nothing else to read, you know what I mean? <laughs> Because you, you email it to me in various drafts. <laughs> I can't not read it, can I? But, you know, what an opening line. You know, my beloved son has COVID. Good. So do all of his mates. Good. Yes, I, I'm just still plucking the arrows out of my back, Liam, because, of course, you've got all the social media. Who is this hideous mother who wants her child to die an agonising, painful death? But as we know, basically, if you're under 40, certainly if you're under 25, covid poses no risk to you whatsoever. And what I'm pleased about is that my son and his mates, you know, a bit grumpy, (laughs) ring out, oh, mum, where do I get some tissues? That kind of average, clueless 21-year-old male, but they're making a good recovery. Because you were perfect at 21, right? (laughs) Excuse me, I was a young woman. There's, sorry, there's there's no comparison. I think men just about... You had it all together. I think I think the male catches up with the female at about 29, although we might be even arguing the toss on that. But yeah, so basically all those boys, healthy young boys, they will all have gone through COVID by the end of the week and they will be adding to community immunity, which is what we desperately need to build. And they will be protecting their grandparents and other vulnerable individuals. And that's the way we've got to go, Liam, because what what seems to be behind this, I mean, I, I hesitate to dignify the word strategy to what the government's doing, but it seems to think it can keep suppressing the virus. What, for six months? How long? You know, they said originally it was three weeks to save the NHS. And there are only two ways out of this nightmare. One is for people like my son and me and you, we've all had COVID. As many of us can get it as possible safely, get it safely, get better build the immunity. That's what's happened with every virus in history, unless a vaccine comes. And at the moment, well, maybe there'll be one by the early part of next year. And maybe even that won't work very well, because they haven't had a lot of success with coronavirus vaccines in the past. And I know you love the bit of Planet Normal where I do my factual Velma from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I only, cool. I only do that so you can... Imbe- so no, you, I've had reviews about that Scooby see, impression. I, 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 you know, I, I, people, people like it. <laughs> hey, Scoobs! The only reason we do Velma Corner. But A, let's just start by Velma would be pointing out, hey, guys, so many, many other European countries, almost back to normal now. You can go to Austria, Denmark, Czech Republic, Germany, the Netherlands. You can go to concerts. You can go to the opera. I think there were spectators were at the Bayern Munich game. Other countries are not going backwards as as ours are. And let's do our statistic of the week. 
So while we've been recording Planet Normal, okay, 13 people have very sadly died during this hour of tobacco-related illnesses. That's over 300 people every single day, all right? And they are not banning cigarettes, are they, the government? But they think that they can ban COVID. And they just can't. The other thing of the week, which I did make me laugh, and not, not much is making me laugh at the moment, but did you see that headline, Liam? It says, hospitals to clear their beds for the second wave. Yeah. And, you, and you thought... as, as They're <laughs> Is there anyone in the beds? I mean, I don't think they've deigned to let any patients in them. So the idea that we knew full well that the hospital beds are not packed and so on. But coming back to the young people, my son and my daughter, they're in their early 20s. And both of them said, well, they told us to eat out to help out. We did that. And now they're blaming us. And one of the things I felt was astonishing about Boris's address was this wrapping over the knuckles for the British people for not having done as they were told. And if you don't do as you're told, we're going to have to bring in heavier firepower. And I thought, hang on a minute. It isn't us who's been buggering up the track and trace. It isn't yeah. us who gave 10 billion to Dido, Queen of Carnage, to make a mess. So so the government very slowly... You mean Dido Harding, the former CEO of Talk Talk. Absolutely. And now... Key member of David Cameron's chumocracy. Quite so. And now even predicted to take over from Simon Stevens running the NHS. I mean... I hear she's going to get a column on the Telegraph. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine? God, what would you do? I mean, you would literally dress up as Bodicea, wouldn't you? Some Amazonian war goddess. Oh, my... Spear her. Quite right. (laughs) You know, some some people... No, not quite right, Your Honour, not quite right. No. Perish the thought, Liam. How can you possibly say that? Carry on. You know that that, that, uh, scale of one to five that they have on how bad COVID is? And I I thought we should have a scale of one to five on, on us from, like, you know, sort of starting off with one mildly surprised via incandescent to, you know, apocalypse. But it would have to go up to at least... 10, probably 11. <laughs> Absolutely. As they said on Spinal Tap, I'm so angry. I'm up at 11. Okay, so let me just final Velma moment of the week. So last week, deaths from COVID, 110. Deaths from flu, 1,260. And we're not seeing any um, big announcements in Parliament about plans to abolish the flu, are we? So, Alison, given everything we've been discussing, we thought it was time, didn't we, to welcome an extremely distinguished guest to Planet Normal. Last week, we had the comedian Jeff Norcott, because at times like this, we all need a laugh. But this week, you've invited a rather different guest. She's one of the UK's most distinguished scientists. She's also taken big professional and reputational risks to speak out and say what she believes with regard to this virus and our response to it. And it has to be said... Increasing numbers of scientists are now backing her. Yes, Liam, you probably have seen her on the TV and on radio. Professor Shanetra Gupta, she is the Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at Oxford University. She's a great expert on viruses like flu and why they become extremely diverse. And then she later moved into epidemiology. And as well as being a remarkable scientist, she's also a fantastic writer. Her fourth novel, A Sin of Colour, was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2000. She's very anti-lockdowns because far from being a kind of right-wing libertarian, she thinks lockdowns taking an unacceptable toll on the poorest people. For speaking out her scientific truths, Shinetra Gupta has attracted a huge amount of hostility. Personally, I think she's been unbelievably brave and principled. So I thought she'd be a, a really good guest for us on Planet Normal. I began by asking her about a letter that she and Professors Hennigan and Carol Sakura, who was a guest on Planet Normal, They sent a letter this week to the Prime Minister in number 10 asking for a rethink in a damaging strategy on lockdown. If our goal is to protect the vulnerable population, what we're really looking for is the most efficient way to do that without causing harm to the rest of the population. And the harm that I'm talking about to the other age groups is not just the inconvenience of wearing a face mask as we now know and and would have suspected anyway right from the start, the harm is profound. There's harm to education, to the training of young people, 
to their personal development. There's harm to the jobs that they will eventually get. There's harm to young people slightly older than the children who are trying to get jobs now. There are issues about food security, which extend, of course, beyond just this country, which is something, another thing I'd like to stress, which is that our outlook is very nationalistic. And really, our responsibility should be to the international community and not just to, to the nation that we're in. So instead of the what you call in the letter the complex trade-offs, in fact, the government seems to have a, a rather myopic, you know, bludgeoning policy, which is shut everything down and the rest of the considerations you're talking about go hang. Was that, is that fair? I think so. I mean, it, it, I'm sure that the government doesn't want to willfully do harm in those sectors. But the way the rhetoric at the moment is definitely one of, well, essentially of war. So it's all about fighting this virus. And well, to start with, there was this idea that you might be able to eliminate it. I think this idea of zero COVID is now kind of out the window, but it was really quite a daft idea to, to start with. I mean, everything about this virus told us that there wasn't any way we would be able to eliminate it without, of course, an extreme cost to society or some form of total isolation, such as New Zealand, appear to be able to stomach. So the option of completely eliminating it with some sort of short-term drastic blow was really never a real one. And then the idea of containing it is, I think, one that deserves a more nuanced approach and a lot more conversation around the harm that could arise out of trying to contain it. And that discussion has not happened. It's been dominated by this idea that we can nonetheless keep it under control. I heard that you and Carl Hennigan and others, some of the, the naysaying team, were actually invited to a meeting at number 10 with SAGE. Did you manage to speak to the Prime Minister? Did you think you managed to get some of your points across? We did indeed get to present some of our views to the Prime Minister. That's as much as I'm going to say about that. Oh, all right, all right. But but looking at the press conference on Monday with Sir Patrick Valance and Professor Chris Whitty, didn't seem that many of the points in your letter were taken up. I mean, there was Sir Patrick Valance with his um, apocalyptic slide with a graph on it, now infamous graph where he said that the graph was not a prediction, but if the rate of COVID infections continue to double every seven days, then we might be looking at 50,000 cases a day. What was your reaction to seeing that press conference? I was quite um, surprised that such a graph would be presented to the public. It was qualified even by them as being not even a prediction. So it's very hard to understand the logic of that. Why would you present something that is not even a prediction? Personally, I don't think it's possible to predict with any accuracy exactly what's going to happen. I don't think mathematical models are very good at that. But this was not even a prediction. It was just following a line of thinking in which the doubling time would remain what it has appeared to be over the last week for an extended period of time. Do you think it's just it's just wrong? I mean, several scientists have said if somebody presented that in my lab, I'd just chuck them out the window, basically. I think it is wrong, yes. I don't, I don't, I don't see the logic behind it at all. Can we go back to the end of March, Unetra? There was a study by Professor Neil Ferguson, a now famous study in Imperial College, which said that there could be up to 500,000 deaths if we didn't have a lockdown. And there was a, a counter study by your group in Oxford, which said that over 50% of the population may have already had COVID-19 if indeed the virus had arrived here earlier than we think. Do you still think that your scenario is possible? It is still possible, but that is only one of the scenarios we presented. The purpose of that exercise, which has been misrepresented rather widely, particularly by people who want to discredit us, was not to say that that was what had happened, but that there are a variety of scenarios that fit the data at that point in time, of which the Ferguson scenario was a worst case. Hmm. But that then there were others of which if you like, at one extreme, 
you might have had a 50% level of exposure already having occurred in the population. And anything in between that and the worst case scenario fit the data at that point in time. And that was the only thing we were trying to say, is that you cannot categorically assert that 500,000 people would have died if we didn't lock down. One cannot come to this conclusion on the basis of these data. The data that exist do not support this one single conclusion. They support a whole range of scenarios. So the thing is, at that point, if the government, I think as a defence said, well, this is the worst case scenario, and we acted on that basis, they have an argument there. I, don't, I think that that's not the only thing that should be taken into consideration when you go into lockdown. You also have to look at the costs of lockdown. And it's not clear to me that was factored in. But what is really disingenuous is to say subsequently that as a result of lockdown, 450,000 lives were saved. That really does not. That's a circular argument. You, you cannot say that the worst case scenario is the truth. It was one possibility. As time has moved on, I think it's far less of a possibility than some of the other more intermediate mm. scenarios. But to categorically state that that's what would have happened is really wrong. We've had very varying reports about the current level of immunity. One study I saw said that 60% of the population of Bergamo have antibodies. But Sir Patrick Vallance said this week he thinks that only 8% of, of British people have immunity. What do you think the level of immunity is? And could it be coming from T-cells, not antibodies? Yes, exactly. That is the big question, because the fate of this virus is going to be principally determined by what fraction of the population is either immune or already has some form of resistance to it. So our goal in March was to try and determine that. And we thought we'd be able to do that simply by looking for antibodies. That has met with difficulty because of, as you mentioned, there being T-cell responses that also protect against the virus, which in and of itself isn't an issue. But the fact is that some people don't actually make antibodies. They only make those T-cell responses. And the other issue here is that some people already have in place T-cell responses from previous exposure to other circulating coronaviruses. And this gives them some level of protection, not just against disease and death, but also against infection. So what we thought would be a simple exercise has been complicated by these issues. But the good news, though, is that if it is the case that a proportion of us are resistant to infection, then that means that a seropositivity, that is to say if 8% of us appear to be antibody positive, that does not indicate that only 8% are resistant to infection. If you were going to make a very educated guess, as you're one of the few people in the world who could, where would you put it? We're seeing a higher number of cases now, but still comparatively low deaths, aren't we? The real issue is what level of antibody positivity gives you sufficient resistance in the population to keep the risks of the virus as low as possible. And from what we've seen happening in London, in New York, in Stockholm over the summer, I would imagine that around 15 to 20% could give us some degree of resistance, significant resistance to the further growth of this virus. And we might be closer to that than, than we know. That's exactly correct. So, so what we've done is we've tried to explore what the effects are on this number, this seropositivity level of having people be already having resistance to the virus in the population. So once again, we've conducted a neutral exercise in which we've shown that it is compatible herd immunity, as it were, mm. where you have a significant proportion of the population immune or resistant, is compatible with a seropositivity of 15 to 20%. Unfortunately, some of these exercises, again, have been misinterpreted by those who wish to discredit us. 
and I noticed someone had described it as a sort of post hoc justification for why seropositivity rates are so low in the country. The truth is that we won't know. The proof is in the pudding. It's a question of whether infection rates will rise, whether death rates will, will rise. At the moment, we've seen a summer with very low infection rates, despite quite a lot of mixing. Mm. So that indicates that there is a level of herd immunity in place, similarly in Stockholm, similarly in New York. And if you consider globally the patterns that we're seeing, they do suggest that herd immunity does build up in a population. Hello, I'm Katie Morley, and I'm the Telegraph's consumer champion. It's a big job title, but what it really means is I spend my days helping readers who are being ripped off. I've heard from victims of wicked scams, insurance customers who can't get payouts, and customers who've been treated badly by retailers. I've seen it all. And I've managed to win back over £2 million for our readers in a year. But I couldn't have done it without our subscribers. And that's where you come in. If you subscribe to The Telegraph, you're helping fund public service journalism like this, as well as great podcasts like the one you're listening to. So, to support what we're doing and to get unlimited access to a huge range of world-class journalism, head to telegraph.co.uk slash audio, where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online. And after that, it's just £2 a week. That's telegraph.co.uk slash audio, or click on the link in the show notes to this episode. So my son and his student housemates have got COVID at the moment. And because I'd read a lot of what you'd said, you said that ideally as many young people as possible should get the virus before Christmas because they will develop and build up herd immunity and protect their elders, not kill your granny, as Matt Hancock asserted, but save your granny. But you've, I mean, I've this morning just got some reaction, you know, very, very vitriolic reaction saying, who is this evil mother rejoicing in the fact her son has got COVID and herd immunity is basically people wanting elderly people to die. Shanetra, I I know you've been getting a lot of this. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of... I suppose, ignorance, but also incredible hostility, isn't there? You've been called a heretic, you've been called dangerous. I mean, how has that felt? It's very, very disturbing. The editor of The Lancet this morning tweeted that our position was dangerous, that we recommended the Swedish model, that that was a dangerous position. I mean, this sort of language has no place in academia, And I don't think it has any place in the public idiom. So I I find it um, very strange that people are going down this route. I don't understand it at all. It really is an impediment to the proper discussion of potential strategies to deal with this pandemic. I think you're being remarkably restrained. So when you talk about the they who want to discredit us. I mean, you've shockingly said that you found it hard to get some papers published since you got embroiled in this debate. Is it not the case that there are some very powerful vested interests now who are clustered around the imperial model who have an awful lot to lose if you're right and they're wrong? Well, I mean, I think there is a sort of network of of academics who all help and support each other and... um, I think they feel I've been a traitor to to their cause. Gosh. And um, I just don't think that's a good way for academia to operate. We decided to not try and publish our first report in, in March because we didn't want to be accused of trying to gain publicity on the back of such an important issue. We preferred that it was up for scrutiny. It's a very simple model Anybody with any knowledge of of mathematics would be able to replicate it. So in terms of peer review, so to speak, it was really up there in the public domain for anyone to to scrutinise. We didn't want it to go through the peer review process because, of course, the people passing judgment on it would be those very people who are on Twitter 
telling us that we're doing something dangerous. So, you know, the system doesn't really permit a lot of healthy dialogue. I was wondering, you're a woman from an Indian background. Is there sexism in science? You know, they seem to have gone with Professor Neil Ferguson, lock, stock and barrel, who has, shall we say, Apache track record with some of his previous mathematical modelling. Do you think you were accorded the same respect as Professor Ferguson? And, and might that be something to do with being female? It's a very interesting question. I mean, overall, I, I must say that with my colleagues, I've always felt very much that there were no issues around sexism or racism. But there have been points along this journey where I have thought, would someone write such an email or put out such a tweet if I were a white man? I, I, I will have to confess I have thought that, which is um, very unusual. I've, I've never felt that way before. Well, I've felt very protective of you as a woman. I must say I'm not a scientist, but I have felt that the lashing you've got for representing a perfectly legitimate scientific school of thought has been very wrong. You don't feel you're a pariah now. What, what papers have you struggled to get published? So, so as I said, we didn't even try to publish the first exercise. So, so we have a new paper which considers the effects of something that is becoming a scientific fact which is that there is pre-existing resistance to COVID-19 among people, probably due to previous exposure to other circulating coronaviruses. So that's all the paper does. Again, it sort of neutrally explores what happens when a proportion of the population is resistant, going from zero to you know 50%. And we haven't, so far our efforts to publish it have been thwarted in that we sent it to one journal who said it wasn't of sufficient general interest, which we thought was a very interesting comment, given much of the public dialogue surrounding coronavirus has been around to what extent herd immunity is present already in the population. So you think there might be a sort of subtle censorship of points of view which are inimical to the mainstream view that's driven the government? I think there is a reluctance definitely, to put forward a line of uh, thought that is orthogonal to the orthodoxy. Which of the new restrictions that the Prime Minister announced, pubs closing at 10pm, rule of six, which of those are likely to make any difference to the course of the virus? I don't think we can tell that. I don't think we have at our disposal any means of predicting how these measures can impact on the spread of the virus. Would we reach for the word pointless or would that be a bit unscientific? No, I mean, I think the, the important thing here is to figure out not just whether it will reduce cases, but whether we want to reduce cases at all. So, I mean, we, we're arguing at a more fundamental level for a different perspective, a different conceptual framework. We're saying that it, it's not such a problem for cases to rise as long as it doesn't percolate into the vulnerable population. And it seems the argument against that moment is that we can't do it. It's not possible. And that's what the Prime Minister said. Yes, I was going to say to you, because he, the language around what you're suggesting is very inflammatory. So the Prime Minister said, those who say, let the virus rip. Well, that sounds like, you know, it's callous people who don't care. You're not saying let it rip, are you? You're saying the virus will do what it does naturally. And if we protect the vulnerable, that's a good thing, isn't it? I agree. The language was, I think, rather unkind and unhelpful because it does position us as people who have no empathy towards those who will be affected by the virus. And that has been a, a real issue in all of this, is that our position has been interpreted as individualistic and libertarian. Whereas I actually think that the way people have championed lockdown is actually highly individualistic and not at all communitarian. It's been dressed up in this communitarian language, but it absolutely isn't. And it's a very nice article by Martin Kulldorff where he says, um, many of us pay lip service to equality and anti-racism, but we've chosen lockdowns to protect ourselves while throwing the working class under the bus. Oh, well said, well said. Really well said. 
Now, as well as being a very busy professor and a mother, you're also a terrific novelist. That's very kind of you to say that. Well, I was a judge on the Orange Prize years ago and I read with great pleasure um, A Sin of Colour, a fantastic book you'd written. It's a long time ago. It is a long time ago, but if you had the time... I mean, I'm writing a novel at the moment about life under lockdown, just an ordinary family in lockdown, but you as one of the top epidemiologists in the world, what would your novel, what would you say about this extraordinary spasm in history that we've seen? What what, what would you put in that book, Ginetra? I'm not sure I would write a novel about it. I'm, I'm just actually putting the finishing touches on my latest novel, which is only my second since I, I wrote um, A Sin of Colour. Mm. So what I would prefer to do is probably write a non-fiction book on this episode, because as you point out, there are so many interesting phenomena that have kind of converged upon it, both in terms of how we approach a threat of an infectious disease and what it brings out in us in terms of tribalism, in terms of pursuing individual protection and then dressing it up as a kind of communitarian activity. I think there are so many strands to unpick in the psychology of our response. I do think you're right, it is something that does lend itself to exploration through fiction, but I would probably choose the non-fiction route. I I would really look forward to reading that book. Uh, Professor Gupta, in terms of great pandemics in history, where would you rank COVID-19? It's really not up there with the great pandemics in history because those occurred at a time when we weren't globally sort of networked in the way that we are now. So what that allowed was for pockets of vulnerability to emerge where the whole population would be susceptible to the incursion of of a new virus. I think we now live in an age where we are exposed often to related viruses and I think that is playing a very big part in protecting us against COVID-19. I think COVID-19 will join a sort of retinue of new viruses that come in, obviously cause some deaths that we have to perhaps for a time being take some extraordinary measures against, but hopefully very rapidly settle into an endemic equilibrium. So I think that we are past that period in our history where we had massive pandemics that caused very large numbers of deaths. So second division pandemic, basically, we're saying. Third division, hopefully. Third division. Oh, okay. Well, if you think about, I mean, 50 million people from 1918 flu. I mean, at the moment, the death toll from COVID is on a par with the annual rates of death from, you know, malaria and TB and HIV. So, So this is a bad year because it's come in in its epidemic form. Hopefully it will settle down to an endemic form and the numbers of deaths it causes, which it will continue to cause, will be more in line with the numbers we tolerate from other respiratory pathogens, for example. You know what struck me, Liam, about Professor Gupta is that she is not a street fighter. She's not a natural controversialist. She's quite a dignified scientific person. And here she finds herself embroiled in this great controversy. And she still thinks that it's her duty is to spell out the various options about COVID-19. That's what she thinks science is. It's not about gathering forces around a consensus and trying to suppress anything that doesn't agree with that. And yet I think she's had her naivety rudely punctured. And didn't she say some extraordinary things about the way she's been treated for... She actually used the word traitor, didn't she? She did. She's been treated like a traitor. She finds it shocking that this kind of very, very strong language is used, as she says, it has no place in academia or in the public idiom. It's dismaying. This kind of language is an impediment to the proper discussion of potential strategies to deal with the pandemic. She didn't come into academia to become some kind of public intellectual warrior, but you feel that even though she, she's quite uncomfortable doing it, she feels she must speak out and take these brickbats because what she's seeing is happening, the government's graph earlier this week, is non-scientific, she said, and wrong. 
Yes, that w- wasn't that astonishing. Oh. I, I find because she she's very mild mannered. I mean, you know, I would be if I were her. I'd be you know chucking my toys at. <laughs> talk, talk, wow. You know, I'd be on you know self combustion warp Mad speed. Max four. <laughs> Mad Max 5, she's back, she's angry. But because she she sounds quite reluctant to point the finger, did you notice? Yeah. Not, not yep. wanting to pick a fight and yet saying these quietly devastating things that there are forces arrayed against her and her team. The fact that she thought twice about even seeking publication for some of her work because she didn't want it to be looked as though it was headline grabbing. But she specifically said that one paper very material to the present pandemic was turned down as of being insufficient interest. And that's just insane. That is censorship by publicly funded academics. Absolutely. I mean, she, no exaggeration, she is considered to be one of the world's best in the transmission of disease. You know, that's, that's how good she is. She is talking from a position of enormous influence. She is by no means alone. There's a growing coterie of noted scientists who are against her. What beautiful language when she said, when you were probing about how the academic establishment is circling the wagons and backing the government, and and she says there is a reluctance to put forward a line of thought that is orthogonal to the orthodoxy. <laughs> yeah, where, where I'm it, from, that, that means at right angles to, directly <laughs> opposed to, orthogonal to the orthodoxy. A wonderful phrase, and more moving and more powerful because of the the, the reticence with which she says it, the pain in her voice that she has to engage in sort of arm-to-arm public intellectual combat in the realm of of science. I had wanted to ask her this, you know, very sensitive question about whether she felt that being a woman of Indian extraction had meant she, you know, she wasn't in the boys' own club. Liam, you're always hesitant about asking a successful woman that kind of question because there's no way that Shanetra Gupta has got to her position of eminence because of any positive discrimination or because of anything to do with that. But I wanted to ask her and and, and it was as if she was thinking aloud, wasn't it, when she said, yes, I have wondered if I had been a white man, would the slapdowns have been quite as aggressive? But even then she framed it as a question rather than an accusation. And even then, she presaged it with a statement. Overall, my colleagues, I've always felt there's been no issues regarding sexism and and racism. So, again, her concern that she raised was all the more powerful because of the, the, the gentle way in which she put it forward. And even more interesting than that, though I'm sure the headline writers will have a field day with that aspect of the interview. But for me, even more interesting was how she really skewered some of her adversaries by saying the language they've been using about those of us who have been looking at herd immunity has been unkind and unhelpful. They're they're presenting us as if we have no empathy. But in fact, the way people have championed lockdown is itself highly individualistic and they've thrown working class people under the bus. For me, that was the hair on the back of the neck uh, moment of the interview. Yes, it was absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? And it chimes in with stuff we've been talking about, which is these people sitting at home on good salaries, no worries about losing their jobs, championing lockdown and saying, isn't it marvellous? And then all the sort of blue collar people having to deliver things, working in shops, putting themselves on the line, not least in in the hospitals and paramedics and so on. So I think that, that that point was very, very powerful. Liam, let's stop for a moment and think about what she said there are an awful lot of people who are going to have egg on their face if Professor Gupta is right, aren't there? Absolutely, which is why the response to her and, you know, Carl Hennigan, who's working with her, Carol Sakura, who's working with her, and they're just the ones that have come to most prominence. They're just the most eminent and articulate of our great scientists who are speaking out now. And the political implications of this are absolutely enormous, because if they are right, then the lockdown we've had uh, and the lockdown to come may well have been, you know, pointless, as she almost said. Yes. And I think Boris needs to be really, really careful. She disclosed to you, and it has been reported before, that she recently 
went to Downing Street and she was allowed to put some of her ideas forward uh, to the Prime Minister. But then she said the subsequent press conference, she found it very surprising that none of the thoughts that she and others put forward had been taken into account. We know the Prime Minister had COVID badly. We know he came quite close to death. But it does seem to me that he's almost hiding behind a scientific orthodoxy, which he grabbed hold of in the early part of this episode, an orthodoxy that is increasingly being challenged by increasingly credible people, an orthodoxy which he dare not question because the political implications of questioning it could be so bad. It's making me very angry as a mother because I look at those scientists at that press conference, I think you're on very comfortable, publicly funded salaries. You're not going to be evicted from your flat for non-payment of rent. You're not going to be a 22-year-old desperately trying to find some job to pay your rent. And it's just wrong. You know, there's a kind of complacent institutional class, officer class, which is going on and on about the virus as though that's the only thing in the world when actually, you know, given its relatively low prevalence at the moment, we should just be getting on. Let's rename our podcast. We are Planet Normal, orthogonal to the orthodoxy. <laughs> I love that. I, I love that. <laughs> I'm getting a T-shirt made. <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even say I develop a lisp when I try to say it. It was the Labour Party conference this week, as if anyone noticed with everything else going on. But I thought Keir Starmer... He gave a pretty good speech. It feels to me like Keir Starmer is now looking increasingly like not so much post-Corbyn. He's looking like early Blair and the Tories should be concerned about that. Yes, he certainly was looking plausible. I've heard a number of people say, oh, he was worth a look at. I don't think he's got that wide recognition yet. He's desperate, Liam, to, of course, win back the Red Wall, which was so disgusted with Corbyn's Labour over Brexit, having been, you know, painted as, you know, sort of Neanderthal Leave voters. He's got quite a lot of work to make up. He did talk about Labour becoming more patriotic, saying to these voters that have deserted them, we feel your pain. I would have one strong question mark myself. And the reason is, if you look back, in fact, Guido Fawkes uh, this week on his website pointed out that Starmer, who was North London liberal, high liberal lawyer, not that long ago, Starmer said basically that anyone who questioned immigration was racist, all right? Yeah. Now, there'll be an awful lot of people in Doncaster where he gave the speech, in Mansfield, Hartlepool, Sunderland, all those places he, he wants to win back. Is he seriously going to say, we want to share your views, we want to understand what you think? There was a poll this week, actually, which said that about 93% of British people want to see the migrant boats that are crossing the channel returned. Does Keir Starmer want to see the migrant boats crossing the channel returned? Personally, I have my doubts. He did press some buttons that Corbyn would never have pressed. He did talk about the importance of uh, the traditional family, which is something Labour hasn't done mm. for at least a decade. He did talk about patriotism, which, again is something that Labour hasn't done since the heyday of Tony Blair. There is a long way to go. He'll never fully shake off his kind of a very liberal metropolitan garbs from his legal career. And I'm sure the Tories will throw them at him relentlessly in the months and years to come. But what he's doing, and he's doing it quite effectively, he's chipping away at the idea of competence. And this isn't going to set the world on fire. It's not going to light fireworks in the political sky. But if he keeps saying the Tories are incompetent, the Tories are incompetent, that message, if Boris allows it to, in the end, will get through. Yes, he also said, didn't he, while I was like, you know, prosecuting terrorists, uh, Boris was writing flippant columns in the Daily Telegraph. Of course, we're, we're all on the side of flippant columns in the Daily Telegraph on Planet Normal, Liam, aren't we? Speak for yourself. <laughs> I don't know what you write about, something very complicated. But um, I think that that Boris looking flailing, not terribly well, looking out of his depth, he is scoring points. What really baffles me is Labour is falling in behind the government's backing of some of this very dodgy science which we've spent Planet Normal discussing. Why can't the Labour opposition, 
you know, the key is in the, is in the name. Why can't the opposition? Why should it be people like us? Why should it be people like Professor Gupta, Carl Hennigan? Why are Labour, why are the Lib, the Lib Dems and the Labour Party, why are they not querying some of this science on the basis of which millions of livelihoods are put in jeopardy? So let's have some reader emails. Lots and lots of you are mailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. And the emails have mushroomed this week because Liam and I are now writing our Planet Normal column in Monday's Telegraph, where it will appear every Monday from now on. So here's an email that caught my eye. This is from Katie. Always been Tory, actually backed Boris, but I see how they disrupt my daughter's education, how they have to shut the NHS to my 78-year-old mum, and how all around us they are destroying lives, yet they don't care with their threats and their fear-mongering. We'll never vote Tory again. Here's one from me. Carolyn wrote to say, It's great to have your voice of reason every week, but on the other hand, by the time I finished reading and listening to Planet Normal, my despair at the thought process of our leaders gets ever deeper. I'm an active 76-year-old whose father fought in World War II to ensure my generation could enjoy freedom. I have a daughter and two grandsons who live three to four miles away. I have no intention of allowing a dictatorship to keep us apart for however long these self-appointed experts deem suitable. I'm capable of being sensible and thinking for myself. And I'd prefer to be able to enjoy my family now rather than be locked at home for the foreseeable future until I'm too old to care. An awful lot of people like Carolyn writing about that. This one's from Jeremy. It is lamentable to witness the failure of courage and statesmanship exhibited by the Cabinet under Boris Johnson. The courage of a true statesman is surely that he conveys to the people an indomitable confidence that all will be well and that the risks to be assumed in the cause of a free and prosperous life must be assumed when they cannot be displaced or avoided. Yet now we have a government that would have appalled Hayek, Churchill and the thrice-elected Margaret Thatcher. Its administration is being conducted as a socialist regime. And here's another from Bill, who's a surgeon, in response to that graph <laughs> being promoted at the Downing Street press conference earlier this week. Savage medieval punishments perfectly complement flawed medieval science, he says. <laughs> We're going back to pre-enlightenment Britain. That's what you've been saying, isn't it? I absolutely love this observation from Harriet. Bit of practical advice here, folks. A friend wants to hold a memorial service for his father. He's just worked out how to invite large numbers of friends and family. Hire a train. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? Elizabeth, speaking for us all. Dear Alison and Liam, roll on tomorrow for my weekly fix of common sense. In the meanwhile, how long do you think it will be before the current shambles is blamed on those of us who voted for Brexit? <laughs> about about five minutes, Elizabeth. I reckon that'll be that'll be the next theme. Pauline's 77 and her husband's 83. From the outset of this viral pandemic, we've complied with the government's orders, she says. Her and her husband have been walking their dog and having Zoom meetings with friends. From the start, says Pauline, I thought the elderly would be most vulnerable, as with flu and winter viruses, and so it's proved. But we've largely had our share of life, and accept our remaining years are short. So the time needs to be spent well by being able to do the things that give purpose to our days. Life has risks, twas ever thus. It's for a younger generation now to take on the future, and we, the elderly, must let them have their chance. That's actually really moving. It really is. I know we've had so many from, you know, the government saying, oh, you know, these irresponsible young people. So many of our older listeners are saying, let them have their life. I've had mine. I want to enjoy myself, but let the young enjoy their lives. And that's what I think. Diana had a, a great illusion in the words of John McEnroe. I cannot believe it. Surely it is about time. We all refuse to obey this total nonsense of being treated as numbers from a committee of power-struck professors who have the PM under their thrall. Like you, my hatred of these people and their wildly inaccurate graphs has become obsessive. When will Parliament step in to end this utter madness? The word scandalous is not strong enough. What they are doing is criminal. I think people are a bit, bit cross with Boris, Liam, are they? There's a sea change happening There's a, and it's happened in the last couple of weeks. So that's it for voyage number 18 to planet normal. As we approach planet Earth, brace yourself for re-entry turbulence and strap yourself in to endure the shockwaves of enduring nonsense. 
But keep the faith until next Thursday. We'll be back for another voyage. Remember that every Thursday at 11am, after the release of each new Planet Normal podcast, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow residents of Planet Normal. That's all of you via the Telegraph website. Just trot along to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community and click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section. No abuse, please. I've got enough of that this week. (laughs) So between 11am and 12 noon on Thursdays, we'll reply to them and we would absolutely love you to come and join us. Email us with your thoughts on today's show or on anything else, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. And please tell others, friends, relatives, countrymen and countrywomen who might want to hear news and views from beyond the bubble. Lend us your ears. If you're enjoying Planet Normal, please leave us a five-star rating, maybe even a short review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the good ones, check out the extremely helpful article explaining all things podcast on the Telegraph website. You'll find the link in the show notes to this episode. So thanks as ever as our beloved Planet Normal fades out of sight once more and Earth hoves into view. To our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, our editor, Theola Ludis. And until our next voyage, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.